It's Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, the Israelis took out, and not for a night on the town, Hamas commander Salah al-Aruri. But the town that they took al-Aruri out in was Beirut. An extension, though not an unprecedented one, in their campaign to degrade Hamas as an effective fighting unit. Al-Aruri was the most valuable target killed so far in the war, a top Hamas commander and founder of the Is al-Din al-Qassam Brigade. Yeah, you know it as the best armed militant group operating out of Gaza. He was in Lebanon because Hamas is aligned with Hezbollah, the Iran proxy militia that operates, pretty much runs Lebanon. And that's one of the reasons, though not the only one, for the international community to agree this time is different. And there are genuine fears a significant retaliation now could send the conflict here spiralling even further. We begin in Lebanon, where the killing of a top Hamas official in Beirut is raising fears that the Israel-Gaza war could spread. Today, an already volatile region braces for a potentially wider war. The assassination of a top Hamas leader left a massive blaze in Beirut. Hamas accused Israel of killing its second-in-command, Salah al-Aruri. But other nations are appealing against an escalation in the war. An escalation in the war? But this is the war. It's Israel versus Hamas. They got a top guy from Hamas. So the war is feared to escalate when the war is pursued with precision, right? Step back. The critique of the war, which is a mostly fair one, is the human costs of the war. Palestinian civilians are in the way of Israel taking out Hamas leaders. So if you find a way to get to Hamas leaders without civilian death, that would presumably be the best outcome. That would be the best answer to the stated concerns of Israel's critics in the region. In fact, if Israel were to tear through the Hamas org chart like a vulture capital firm that's taken over a struggling company, it would be a great boon for humanity, bolstering safety and correlating to an overall lower death toll among all innocent people. The more Hamas leaders are successfully targeted, the more Israel's critics should see it as likely to lead to the cessation of hostilities, better for a long-term peace. I would say the reaction to the killing of al-Aruri as escalatory or as salutary, well, that's a pretty telling indication of a nation's true sympathies. Al-Aruri was 57 years old. He will be missed, though not by guided bomb unit missiles fired by Israel yesterday. On the show today, programming note, today's scheduled interview with the coach of the College of Biblical Studies women's basketball team has been abruptly canceled after their loss to Grambling 159-18. to Our discussion on turning the other cheek as a means of drawing the charge will hopefully be rescheduled for a later date. In the spiel today, the question, was Claudine Gay chased out of Harvard to pursue a conservative goal, or did she really plagiarized will be answered? And I promise, the answer will not shock you, but it will be satisfying to hear. But first, Adam Nagorny, employee of the New York Times, is out with a new book about the New York Times, The Times, how the newspaper of records survived scandal, scorn, and the transformation of journalism. Here's an interesting take on the subject, born of copious research, access to documents, 
interviews with many, many sources, some of whom operating one or two cubicles over. We'll talk about how the paper's editorial leadership has become less tyrannical and in some ways a little bit more problematic. Adam Nagorny up next. I have now read three complete books explicitly about the New York Times. There was Gay Talese's The Kingdom and the Power, Alex Jones, not that Alex Jones, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Alex Jones and his wife Susan Tift wrote The Trust, the private and powerful family behind the New York Times. And now, out with his contribution to the genre, is Adam Nagorny. He is the author of The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. Welcome to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So the book stops, well, technically it it notes the election of Donald Trump. It pretty much stops around 2014 or 2015. Are we sure the Times survived the transformation of journalism? (laughs) So far it has, but what about in the next 10 years? You know, that's a perfectly good question. When I started this book, when I started this project in 2016, I had no idea how it would end. I did not know whether the New York Times would exist or at least exist in the um, state that we knew it and I at the time. And I think that there's been a clear narrative arc to what has happened to the newspaper in one sense. I think it has clearly proved itself a success as a business, a newspaper business in this incredibly turbulent times. Um, I think there are still questions to be resolved over these next coming years about how you balance off demands for audience with the sort of mission of the Times is being the sort of down the middle kind of newspaper. But the main part, is it a successful business? I think the answer is yes. Now, to your question, as I have learned doing this book and before, 10 years from now, who knows, right? Life can change. But I think pretty clearly the paper has succeeded in that very dramatic goal. And it was not expected. That was one of the interesting things about the book to me. Early on in your book, there is this paragraph and you are setting the stage and you're talking about the Sulzberger families or the transformation from uh, one Sulzberger to the current A.G. Sulzberger, who is Mm -hmm. the publisher, a succession of mistakes and what could have been moments accounted for an unsteady match during the Sulzberger father years. Sulzberger was one. I wrote, I, I numbered these. You didn't. I numbered these. One, okay. forced to dismiss two executive editors. That's important. The newspaper was roiled by two, plagiarism scandal involving an ambitious young fabulous. That would be Jason Blair. It's credulous reporting about three, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq had helped to lead the country into a deadly and fruitless war. For many years, the newsroom, and particularly its senior, senior ranks, was four, overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white. Failure to diversify the newsroom cast a cloud over the times. In the period that you were chronicling, would you say that those were the four big issues and hurdles for the New York Times? Uh, yes. I think at least they were four of the biggest ones. What I would add to that, because those are all on Arthur Sulzberger Jr.'s watch. Um, when I began this project again, somebody said to me, you were going to have to deal and wrestle with the legacy of Arthur Sulzberger because of all this bad stuff that happened while he was there. Um, I argue by the end of the book that his legacy is one of the person who I think deserves the credit for saving the times, right? He, 
He made mistakes happened on his watch. They were his mistakes. That's the way the world works. But on the other hand, the paper made this transformation to a digital model, to a paywall. And that's what I think people really need to think about in um, in assessing Arthur Solzberger, which is not to take anything away from the fact that he had to make these two incredibly high-level dismissals. He made, I mean, I think he would even acknowledge that what turned out to be mistakes in appointing two of his executive editors. And, you know, when you're the publisher and there is a serial fabulist or there's a serious reporting error as there was on Iraq, that is on your watch. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I think those though are of different, he's of different culpability. I mean, obviously the guy in charge is always going to be that his top deputy or um, the most important person that he hires. If that doesn't work out, that's always going to reflect on him. But hiring mistakes happen. Yep. Great team teams win the Super Bowl after having a couple of bad coaches. I don't think that's so out of the ordinary for a business. Then you have Jason Blair, which is covered in great detail in the book, and we won't get into it here. But it does seem to me like a sui generis, very um, aberrant condition. It doesn't expose some deeper rot or the idea that the New York Times was consistently playing fast and loose. They they allowed a havoc maker into the house to evoke the name of Blair's memoir. Uh, what was it? Burning Mad- down the master's Burning house. The master's house yeah. yeah. But does that really get to the actual DNA of the times? And we're going to take weapons of mass destruction in a second, but let's just put it there. And we can talk about Blair in this context. Why was that more than just a really embarrassing thing? Why did that go to the root and become to you one of the major black marks on the tenure of Arthur Sulzberger? Well, actually, the way I would think about it and the way I think I presented it in the book is it is largely, almost exclusively, what led to Sulzberger having to dismiss this executive editor, Howell Raines, who was, by any measure, an extraordinary journalist who had always wanted to be executive editor and lasted for three years. And I wouldn't say that it showed problems with the DNA of the Times. I would not go that far. I would say that losing the executive editor was an extremely wrenching moment for the paper. I think to this day, people will sort of, sort of, at least older people, will invoke Jason Blair in criticizing the paper, right? It's that, it was that much ingrained into the, it was that much part of the bloodstream. Um, in terms of the DNA and the process of the paper, I think it just showed something that in some ways could have happened anywhere People never really thought about the fact that some kid would come along and make stuff up, right? Like I spoke to in the book, I, I speak to one of the managing editors who was dealing with the with the Blair thing, and he had written the style book and the the rule book, and he said, you know, we never really thought about like making a rule saying you can't just make you know stuff. He used the word stuff, but you just can't make stuff up. And I get that, right? I would quarrel with trying to say there's something fundamentally wrong with the hundred year DNA of the time, but there was something wrong for the paper that it wasn't prepared for that kind of anomaly, right? Which is a good way to describe him. And I think that it did long-term damage to the paper. It did, but I'm thinking of other institutions that are important. Maybe they function well, maybe they don't, but they often have their anomalies. You know, uh, Jerry Sandusky at Penn State or Hansen or any of the uh, number of spies at the CIA or the mm-hmm. FBI or 
chaos agents or malefactors within the organization. What you have to do, you do a complete review. And sure, some people made mistakes, but you do have to ask yourself, would a different organization, organizations that actually exist in the real world, would they not have allowed that to happen? And what is the conclusion with that and Jason Blair? Um, I think they might have. I think more interestingly is would they have re- responded the same way that the Times did to him? Mm-hmm. So what did the t- right? What was the Times' response? Yeah. You know, the whole committee to look into it. I, I think the result was very transparent in the flaws that it found. Getting rid of two key editors. Um, I think there was a don't, don't hold me to the number, but I think it was a nine thousand word story on the front page talking about how it happened and why it happened. I don't think that's something that you would see at many institutions. And I would say that that is, for better and for worse, part of the DNA of the New York Times. There are people at the time, including some high-level people at the paper, editors, who thought it was crazy that the paper devoted so much attention to its own failure there. I mean, I think that's part of what makes the New York Times a Times. That's why I would resist comparisons to Penn State. And the New York Times is a really kind of singular institution. Right. So let's talk about weapons of mass destruction. Judy Miller and a co-author getting that wrong. Here's what was very useful about your book. I did not realize that whatever the mistakes of Judy Miller, and they were um, by omission and commission, and we could get into that, there was a conscious PR effort of softening the ground for that story before it even ran in the pages. Could you take me through that? I mean, going back, what happened is initially the paper was really um, um, negative on the idea of invading Iraq, on the idea of there being weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, the, the administration pushed back on it. And I think the Bush uh, 41 administration, 43 administration pushed back on it. And I think set the groundwork for the Times accepting these reports that turned out to be wrong about the existence of WMD. The context of it was, you know, this was still pretty uh, shortly after the attacks of September 11th. People were really obviously fearful, especially people in New York City. I think there was pressure on newsrooms in general to be patriotic, right? I'm using that phrase advisedly, which made it a little bit more difficult to sort of write the kind of defiant stories that you would expect. And you know, this sounded like a good scoop. I mean, Judith Miller obviously made mistakes over her career. She also had some great stories over her career. She won a Pulitzer. She was part of a team that won a Pulitzer. Um, I think she wrote a story with some other people that was the first to mention Osama bin Laden. So, and that was in the fourth paragraph of the story. So that all kind of set this up. Um, I do think the result was incredibly damaging to the country, obviously. I do not believe, and I would argue in the book, that the Times is responsible for taking the country into Iraq. But it was part of it, no question about it. And the administration of George W. Bush used the Times. I mean, the day that that Judith Miller story appeared, um, uh, you know, they went on, Condoleezza Rice went on one of the one of the talk shows and, and almost quoted from it in trying to drum up support, as did the Vice President Dick Cheney. I had a conversation with Arthur Sulzberger and um, uh, Junior, the publisher, and he he thought that he he thought that Jason Blair was more damaging to the paper's reputation than WMD slash Judith Miller. I don't agree. I think that WMD was incredibly damaging and more systematic, and really raised questions about the paper's reporting that it's still dealing with fairly or not to this day. 
Well, yeah, I think measured by the consequence of that. And maybe he would say, oh, it's not all on Judy Miller, or he would point to caveats within the overall yeah, reporting. Sure. Yeah, sure. but still, I mean, what did Jason Blair contribute at all to uh, what the war in Iraq added up to? But what I was talking about with softening the ground is the chapter starts with how Patrick Tyler, who is the paper's chief correspondent, and the State Department reporter Todd mm -hmm. Purdom, they co-bylined mm -hmm. the story because before the Judy Miller report showed up, there were intimations among old Republican hands that Brett Scowcroft in the Wall Street Journal and Henry Kissinger uh, somewhat uh, numically uh, in an article, I think, in the Washington Post, talking about how they weren't on board with what the administration wanted to do, being aggressive in Iraq. And I think the pushback really worked. And to me, that's an interesting glimpse into the interplay between an administration a very important news institution, and how jawboning or working the refs sometimes works, maybe not for the good of the country, but for the goals of the administration. Could you take us through that? Yeah, I mean, there's two things you should remember that's worth pointing out here. The first is that, not that first story by Purdom and uh, Tyler, but the later stories, got Kissinger wrong. You described very well his Delphic statements on this. And um, he could convincingly argue that he didn't quite oppose the effort. And I go through this in the book and kind of just parse what he said. But it put the paper in a position where it needed to write an editor's note clarifying uh, what was going on. I, I do think your point about working the refs is true. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very correct. I think what I was saying before about the um, atmosphere of feeling the need to be patriotic, that's just the reality of what's going on. But there's one other thing that I would add that I think that newspapers are first and foremost, um, well, up there, not first and foremost, motivated by getting a story first, right? right Being right. competitive is a big, big deal. And Howell Reigns, who was the executive editor at the time, came in with the agenda of, as he put it, raising the metabolism of the paper, breaking more stories. And the trick in any newspaper is you want to break stories. You want to be ahead of the news. You want to be on top of the news, but you don't want to be too fast. And you know, what's that old line? When you move fast, you break things. And that's not okay in newspapers. So I think that was the other thing that was going on uh, during that tumultuous period that led to this transformation where all of a sudden you had this front page story warning about the threat of WMD in Iraq. So I want to talk about another uh, story that the paper and the world was covering, but the New York Times broke with journalistic convention and that they named the accuser of a uh, sexual assault by a cousin of Teddy Kennedy, William Kennedy Smith, down on one of the uh, Kennedy compounds there in uh, Florida. Smith was acquitted of all charges. And what happened there was that NBC News did a big story and, you know, they're NBC News. People had three networks at the time or maybe uh, CNN too, and they named the accuser. And so then the New York Times decided, even though they normally don't name accusers in uh, sexual assault cases, they did. And this caused a giant, shall we say, kerfuffle at the Times. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, even before the NBC report that night, the executive editor at the time, a man named Max Frankel, was upset and arguing that the paper needed to uh, name the accuser in this case. And his feeling was that, as, as he put in his arguments, you know, William Kennedy Smith presumed innocent until proven guilty. He was being accused by someone of a crime. We should name, we being the Times, should name her accuser, his accuser, because that's what the paper should do. It's a matter of fairness. Now, 
Franco, I, I think, was looking for a reason to do it. When NBC came out that night at 7 o'clock and named, named the name of the woman, um, he walked out of his office and said, said something like, the cat's out of the bag, let's do it. And they very quickly put her name into the story. Um, another problem here, they had a story ready to go. They never mentioned her. That had, if you look back on it, questionable reporting, not in terms of that it was wrong, but it was just kind of icky. You know, The like, tactics of staring into her daughter's window and noting the books on the shelf, yes. Right? I don't think that would be done today, yes. No, well, I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. Not by the but New York know, Times. Yeah. <laughs> when you do that kind of story and the name of the person isn't in there, it doesn't sting as much. But here it is on deadline. They put her name in and like, all of a sudden the stuff before that would have been passively icky um, becomes a big deal. And there's yeah. a real explosion in the newsroom, uh, um, particularly among women, but among everyone. And Max Frankel is confronted at it. There is a town hall meeting that now this seems like normal uh, procedure. Well, that's what I want to ask the- about. But yeah, this town hall meeting is literally in person. There's what, over a hundred people there. I think 300 people. Yeah. 300 people. And most of them are tearing into the editorial choices. Is that unprecedented up to that point? I w- I've been taught never to use the word unprecedented. That was unprecedented up to this point. It's unthinkable that reporters would attack management like that. It's unthinkable that people would walk out of the room and report what happened to the Washington Post. That happened. And I think that that, you know, I don't think it was clear at the time, but you can draw a direct line from that to the Jason Blair town hall meetings, to the town hall meetings going today. It's the sort of empowerment of the newsroom. The newsroom used to be this really subjugated, like fearful group of extremely talented people. And that was the beginning of the change because people were so upset about this decision. And again, like I can, you know, if we're having a BS session in a bar, I can probably make a case for the decision, but I'm not sure it was worth it. Could you just end up in a really bad place with just naming the name of a woman who claims she was sexually assaulted? And you, I'm not sure you want to be there, but it was a big deal. I wonder if from the institutional memory of the times, and there was probably, there are definitely some people who were at or had memory of those contentious William Kennedy Smith meetings, who were also in the meetings or the online discussions about mm, uh, James Bennett or uh, Donald McNeil Jr., or even the protests that was joined on by some people who contributed to the Times about coverage of trans issues. I wonder how much those later protests were informed by the fact that the original William Kennedy Smith objection, history smiled upon. So that actual story named a victim's name, spied into the uh, room of her little girl, talked about the victim or the accuser's academic record in high school. So it doesn't add up to a moment of journalistic glory. And how much had that been different, that there were objections from the hoi polloi, but those turned out not to have been right? How much might that have changed things as they later played out? Um, I think a better line to draw, I mean, I sort of came across, and you came across, obviously, the line going back to this uh, William Candy Smith thing. I think a better line to draw is with the uh, town hall meetings over um, Jason Blair, which took place in 2003. They were more recent. It was more likely that people who were involved in these recent discussions might have been there or known about it or known the outcome. Um I'm not sure those would have taken place without William Kennedy Smith, but I think there's a more of a connection between what happened there till now. But the other thing is like, I think what's going on now is that people are just much more, you know, assertive uh, on a whole lot of levels. 
And the newsroom is just a much different place. I mean, this was taking place, this is taking place in society general. It was also taking place in the New York Times. Um, so I, I'm not sure that there's a direct connection with William Candy Smith, only because that was what, 40 years ago? And there's not that many people around that remember that. Yeah. You know, I think that, I, I can't promise, but I think that you and I were having this discussion when I was just beginning this book, right? I don't know if I really would have known about William Kennedy Smith, right? I, so I, I don't, not sure. I mean, obviously some of the older people in the newsroom do, but I'm not sure most people do, which is why it's such a cool story, in my opinion. And that is Adam Nagorny, a New York Times political reporter and author of The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal Scorn and the Transformation of Journalism. Adam will be back tomorrow to discuss how the idea and practice of objectivity, I did the air quotes, you could hear them probably, how that has been regarded by the Times over the years. And now the spiel. One hallmark of negative polarization is the conviction that hurting one's enemies is more important than helping one's allies. Another hallmark of the negative polarization affecting much of America and more of the media is the belief that a proper and just outcome is subservient to denying your opponents a victory. We see that playing out in the ouster of Claudine Gay as president of Harvard. To quickly recap the events that I'm sure you're aware of, Gay was among three college presidents who testified quite disastrously before the U.S. Congress. When Liz McGill of the University of Pennsylvania resigned, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik tweeted, one down, two to go. Allegations of Gay's past plagiarism were first brought to light by right-wing sources, but then they were widely confirmed. Harvard rallied around Gay for a while, One quote that appeared in the New York Times was of law professor Charles Freed saying, it's part of this extreme right-wing attack on elite institutions. If it came from some other quarter, I might be granting it some credence, but not from these people. But the examples of plagiarism were too well documented. The violation of Harvard's own plagiarism standards were too crystal clear. And as classes are due to resume this semester, the following question presumably became too unanswerable, how do we ever hold students to these standards that we all agree should be in place if we allow the president of this university to skirt them? I read and talked to many academics who have evaluated claims of plagiarism and some who have issued punishments for plagiarism. And to a person, they all said, what Claudine Gay did was plagiarism. Students would be punished for this, and sometimes fairly harshly. Harvard engaged in describing Gay's actions by using phrases like use of duplicative language. So I guess credit to that novel description, because it's not plagiarism, they just made that one up. So then Gay resigned, and there I thought some would be miffed, some would be triumphant, but the issue would be put to rest. What I forgot was, bum bum, in the American culture wars, The combatants are represented by two separate yet equally infuriated groups. This was now one of their stories. If they really cared about the temperature of what was happening on campus, there's plenty of other places they can go. There's a University of Akron and Ohio and Vanderbilt and community colleges, but they didn't care about that. What they wanted was to get this black woman out at Harvard University.
Somewhere, Lori Gonzalez, president of Ohio University, is saying, who did I plagiarize to get MSNBC commentator Jason Johnson so upset with me? Here was MSNBC anchor Ali Velshi on that network. Now Harvard itself has investigated the allegations and found that they are, at worst, instances of inadequate citation. But they are not what the word plagiarism makes you think of. Gay was not stealing anyone's ideas, nor was she presenting other people's ideas as her own. Actually, that is exactly what she was doing, and that is exactly what plagiarism is. Taking credit for anyone else's work is stealing, and it is unacceptable in all academic situations, whether you do it intentionally or by accident. And that is a quote. Allow me to cite the source, paragraph one of Harvard's plagiarism policy. Now, it is true that a right-wing guy who doesn't operate with the highest standards of accuracy spearheaded the publication of Claudine Gay's textbook plagiarism, meaning it was definitionally plagiarism, and also that she plagiarized textbooks. This fellow, Chris Rufo, not only claimed his trophy in Claudine Gay, but got MSNBC and other polarized actors in the culture war to take the bait and turn him into a much more powerful hero to the right than he ever could have been without all the credit he received. Here is how Ali Velshi ended the particular segment I began to play for you. The story of Claudine Gay's resignation is about a lot of things. Was it easier for conservatives to push her out because she's a woman? Was it easier because she's black? Probably all of the above. But this is also a story of bad actors like Chris Rufo trying to bend academia toward their own ideological missions. A mission made easier because Claudine Gay was a plagiarist. Not because she was a woman. The non-plagiarist former president of the University of Pennsylvania was and is still a woman and was ousted after her congressional testimony. I was against that. And it's not because Claudine Gay was black, I do not think, though we can't run the experiment where a non-black woman university president was proved to have plagiarized and violate the standards of her own university repeatedly, but she retained her job. That hasn't happened for what we know. I actually don't think Harvard had much of a choice if it wanted to retain its standards. If it didn't want to retain its standards or wanted to adopt a different standard, replace the standard of we're against plagiarism with a standard like, say, MSNBC standard of don't let bad faith conservatives ever win, Harvard could have done that. But to the credit of the most esteemed academic institution in the world, it made the difficult choice that it made. So when current MSNBC commentator and former administration official Simone Sanders Townsend says, Every black professional in America can turn on their television today, see this news about Dr. Claudine Gay, and, and all have the same reaction. Mm. It, looks, it, it, it looks as though she was targeted. It is fair to ask, would they all be drawing that conclusion if one of the loudest voices in media weren't? de-emphasizing the actual misdeed and doing segment after segment about the injustice that was done. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief Imagineer and director of Mouse Relations, which could be a plagiarized title, but I checked. It's fallen into the public domain, apparently. I might not understand all the nuances of this. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Peru, Peru, Peru. Yeah, I stole that from someone, too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.